This week, is NATO brain dead? President Macron makes his case for EU defence. Why the Trump impeachment hearings are America's must-see TV. We hear from the two main party leaders on defence ahead of the general election. And we look back at the long and distinguished military career of Lord Bramall. I'm James Hurst, and this is SITREP. Hello, this is James Hurst in for Kate Jabot. Should Europe be more powerful? French President Emmanuel Macron seems to think so. He says the continent is being left behind by China, Russia and the United States. In an interview with The Economist, he has described NATO as suffering from brain death and said Europe needs to develop a military force of its own. Well, let's explore this more with the Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, Paul Rogers, and with us, as always, BFBS Defence Analyst Christopher Lee. Uh, Professor Paul Rogers, what does he mean by brain death? I, I found myself wondering if this is perhaps a lost-in-translation thing. Is, is he using it in a, a French way that means unthinking, as opposed to how we use that phrase in Britain? I don't know whether it's unthinking, but it's just moribund, I think would be probably a better way of doing it. I mean, if you go back to, I think it was Dean Atchison's phrase about Britain having lost an empire and not found a role, I think Macron's view, in a sense, is that, you know, in the 1990s, Europe lost an enemy and hasn't yet found exactly what its role should be. Now, you could argue, obviously, that Russia is back there in a pretty big way. But Macron is going beyond that because he fears that the United States, under Trump, is really separating off from Europe. As to some extent Obama was, if you look at Obama's shift towards Asia, that even if Trump doesn't get re-elected, he thinks this is a sign of a changing time, that Europe has got to be a major, more integrated power politically rather than just economically. I think that is what he's about. There is a subplot in that obviously Macron is very much about making France great again. You have a particular advantage with Brexit and the probability or at least possibility of Britain going its own way. And also in terms of timing, we have the big NATO summit, the 7th anniversary summit, which happens to be in Britain in what, what only three weeks time. You put that all together, I think that you can understand where Macron is coming from why he said this now. You mentioned that upcoming NATO summit. Christopher, I wonder if Emmanuel Macron is pointing the finger at, at NATO uh, when, as a device to get pressure within the EU to change. I think that's there anyway. Um, I mean, the Illumort, it comes in the, the Norman French. Mm. Uh, and it basically, basically, I think what he was saying is they have not bothered to think this through. They are yeah. contained in a small unit. But so what we're getting is something which has been around for about four or five years, or in fact longer if you go back to uh, a summit which involved uh, 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 Mr. Blair. And that is having a European defence system which will be separate from one which relies on American to some extent, the Canadians, uh, to come to uh, European defences, European thinking, how far it should extend, should you be beyond the, the, the boundaries of Europe. Now, if you were uh, Mr. Macron, with all the difficulties he's having at the moment in his own country, you might, and he sees that, the, sees that Germany with 0.1% uh, in the economy 
is the only thing that's floating it above a recession at the moment. He may say that Mr. Macron could could succeed as being the person who is the next obvious leader. But but Paul Rogers, I I, I come back to this point that is is he using NATO as a whipping boy when actually what 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 he's to say to the EU you should be doing stuff differently and he's not necessarily actually say about about a fault with NATO it's about it's a he, he real really seeing fault with the EU I think that's probably true and I mean some people would argue that the EU should be extending its role in certain directions but at least the whole climate issue because that has to involve a very high degree of unity but at the same time i think nato is to some extent in his sights i mean look at historically outside the united states which is the the big member of nato there are only two countries historically that have had you know the the power to deploy forces of any size overseas and those are france and britain and, and of course, they are also two nuclear powers as well. So, with Britain, from the French view, possibly going off into the mid-Atlantic or who knows where, they do see France greater potential. I would agree with Christopher also, though, that I think one must not forget the domestic elements because Macron came in with the vow to change everything, you know, on Marsh and the rest, and it's proved pretty difficult for him and his standing is not that high in France. So there is a degree of diversion in this, but it is very much about trying to be the lead state in Europe, and particularly with the problems in Germany, not least political as well as economically. It's quite a good time to be saying this kind of thing. Certainly doesn't help NATO very much, and it does complicate things a great deal. I heard Macron about uh, six, seven weeks ago at at a seminar, and he pointed out that out of the... 27, 28 uh, members of NATO, 18 are ineffectual. If you said to them, we want to go to, say, something like uh, Afghanistan, they couldn't even get a contingent there because they haven't got the facilities. Now, this is, this is the re- it's again, it's the reality. And this is why he would, he would say, we've got to think what you use NATO for, um, who uses NATO, uh, and what you have to rely on the fact that Mr. Trump, I mean, even in the next couple of weeks, could turn around and say America is not interested in NATO anymore. Paul Rogers, how is this going to go down with other EU countries and with other NATO members? I think it'll go down fairly badly, but there will be a candid sort of subtextual acknowledgement. Many of them know that this is the situation. And uh, I think what we're going to see is a fair bit of heart searching. But given the problems within NATO, particularly with the United States, with the difficulty in Germany, and particularly with Britain and Brexit, it's actually going to be very difficult. And it's perhaps pretty unfortunate, to say the least. But doesn't it... The 70th anniversary conference is taking place in Britain. Doesn't, doesn't to some of them, this feel like a, a knee-jerk reaction to Trump and and for many of those people, they perhaps perhaps hope that uh, President Trump is is gone in uh, a year. I'm sure they do. This is why I think Macron is making this point that in fact may represent something which is actually rather bigger in longer term. Uh, that yes, he is a maverick and all the rest. You can't trust anything about him. But behind the scenes, there is this sort of slight drawing apart. The difficulty is, of course, that. Populations in much of Europe do not want to see sudden creepers in defence spending. Uh, to some extent, they're right, because, of course, although Putin is extremely good and able as a tactician, the strategic reality is that Russia is actually pretty economically weak. And something else we should remember is, that, uh, is the connection with British forces and British defence system at the moment. We are approaching, I'm quite sure, a point where Britain 
is going to start to think about what it does with its own forces. Uh, because of a, actually what you can do with the size of forces that they might have, the, the, the budgets, etc., the British forces and what you use them for is going to change. The th is going to change in thinking. It may not work, but that's the thinking. Now, if you're doing this at the same time as you're trying to actually say to the rest of NATO, by doing that, you've got to start looking uh, much further afield than the traditional areas of uh, of, of the alliance. Uh, then Macron's got it right on the button, I think. Uh, of course, uh, that thinking about British forces, that future thinking, will uh, have to wait for a general election. We'll talk about that uh, more a little later. Uh, Paul Rogers, Professor of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford, thank you for joining us. Yesterday, the US TV networks cleared their schedules for what they were billing as the must-watch event of 2019. And America tuned in to watch Democrat congressmen and women in the House of Representatives, the lower house of the US Congress, questioning witnesses in the process of, they hope, impeaching President Trump. Political commentators in America say it will never get to impeachment because that takes place in the Senate, which is controlled by President Trump's own Republican Party. So, why the fuss? Well, Harry Horton joins us from Feature Story News in Washington, D.C. Harry, why the fuss? Well, Democrats are concerned about the way in which President Trump has been conducting U.S. foreign policy in Ukraine. They are concerned that President Trump withheld vital U.S. military aid to Ukraine and the offer of a White House meeting to Ukraine's new president, Vladimir Zelensky, in exchange uh, for the Ukrainian government opening up an investigation into Donald Trump's political rival, Joe Biden. Essentially, they accused Donald Trump of acting against long-standing U.S. foreign policy towards Ukraine for his own personal political gain. That's what this impeachment inquiry is about. We've had for the past few weeks dozens of interviews being conducted behind closed doors with U.S. diplomats and national security officials as lawmakers from both parties try to establish what's been going on uh, in regards to Donald Trump and his conduct towards Ukraine and his interactions with the Ukrainian president. Now, those private interviews have moved to a more public setting. The TV cameras have been switched on. And the challenge for lawmakers from both parties here is to try and convince the general public, the American voters, of their, of their case either for or against impeachment. And what they're hoping is that if they can be convincing in this uh, impeachment inquiry, they might shift public opinion in one direction or the other. And that could tilt the balance as to whether or not Donald Trump is removed from office. Just explain what impeachment is. A political court, is it? Yeah, so the, what's going on at the moment is this public impeachment inquiry. So we'll have several weeks of public hearings. There's another one taking place tomorrow on Friday. There's a few more uh, uh, scheduled to take place next week. What Democrats are hoping is that by Christmas time, they will be able to have a vote on whether to impeach Donald Trump in the House of Representatives. If they're successful in impeaching him in the House, we then move to the Senate, the other side of the US Congress, where a trial will take place. Now, Democrats control the House, Republicans control the Senate. So that's why, as you say, it's un most political commentators think it's unlikely, and we've seen little evidence of Republicans in the Senate backing away from Donald Trump uh, and, and looking like they're going to vote to remove him from office. So it would take some dramatic new revelations in this impeachment inquiry, or as I say, a big shift in public opinion 
if the Republicans are to back away from Donald Trump and kick him out of the White House. Okay, if we accept that majority view that he probably won't be impeached, will the process damage the president if he if he comes out out of it with the job at the end? Yeah, I think Democrats are hoping it might do, and they're trying to create a narrative around. Donald Trump using U.S. foreign policy and conducting U.S. foreign policy against American interests abroad and doing it for his own personal political gain. That's the sort of narrative they're trying to create. Now, Republicans are trying to say, look, Democrats have been wanting to get rid of this president for years. And, you know, you elect Democrats to Congress. They do nothing for the American voters. All they do uh, is get this president tangled up in different inquiries and try and boot him out of office. So I think Republicans are hoping that actually this whole impeachment inquiry might backfire on Democrats uh, and be a political benefit to them in next year's presidential election. I mean, it's, it's more than a year away or almost a year away, of course, the 2020 election. So hard to know what the impact will be uh, at this stage. But both parties, I think, uh, are hoping that this impeachment process will be beneficial to them. Harry Horton from Feature Story News in Washington. Thank you. Uh, Christopher, when, when Donald Trump comes to London in a few weeks for the NATO summit. Is he going to come here with dented credibility because of this? Well, let's start by saying he's due to come. I mean, he's quite likely to sort of get up a couple of days before and say, I'm not coming. That's what I think of NATO. Uh, it's... It, you know, there's no sign of that yet, but he is the sort of person who could do that. Obviously, he's done it with economic summits. The other part of it is this. Uh, I don't think his credibility is dented because his credibility is is, is pretty well defined at the moment by uh, members, of, members, of, members of NATO. Um, what's particularly interesting is in the United States, if there are signs that his, uh, he, he gets... A, He's getting people against him, as there has been, for example, recently in Kentucky, which is a very important state, and Wisconsin, a very important state. If that continued, then he might get rattled. Uh, and we know what happens when President Trump gets rattled, but I don't think his credibility will just perform to how people expected him to perform. Well, still to come on SITREP, we're on the election campaign trail, quizzing two of the main party leaders about defence, and from D-Day and every single British military campaign until the Falklands. We remember the former Chief of Defence Staff, Lord Bramall. So, election day is December the 12th. The campaigns are in full swing. The two main party leaders have been talking to BFBS about British defence. Laura Macon-Isherwood asked the Prime Minister about spending. The Defence Secretary has admitted there's not enough funding at the Ministry of Defence to cover all that needs to be done. So will the budget raise or be risen under Conservative Well, I don't know. I think the Defence Secretary must have... Uh, the Defence Secretary was very successful in getting uh, a, a big increase in, in funding. I think a 2.6% increase, uh, another 2.2 billion pounds we're putting into defence. This is a government that believes massively in strong armed services, not because we're bellicose, but not because we're warmongers, but because we want to support our wonderful armed services. And I can tell you something, they are the, the, the armed services of this country are one of the UK's most popular global exports. If you, want, if you go around the world, what people want, where they've got a problem, where they've got some insurrection, where they've got 
piracy in the seas or whatever, they want a representative. They want represent the UK armed, armed services. And uh, we do fantastic amount of good around the world. Not, not necessarily waging war, but keeping the peace and, you, and being, a, being a, a strong country. Committed to your um, armed services is very, very important for the UK. Around the world, people look to the lead of the UK, and we have to invest in our armed services. Well, while Boris Johnson was speaking to Laura Macon Isherwood, the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, was speaking to me. The armed forces at the moment are not paid enough. The uh, pay cap and the insufficiency of the increases has been a problem. The public sector pay cap has already been lifted, yes. and you've said you won't spend any more on defence. So if you're going to increase the pay, where's, where's that money going to come from elsewhere in the defence budget? We have budget? to look within, within the budget um, of the priority of providing sufficiency of pay, but of course 2% would be 2% of the total domestic product at that time. Which but what obviously gets cut to, to increase pay? Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be a cut to increase pay if the GDP is going up. Well, Lucy Fisher is Defence Editor of The Times. Uh, Lucy, what do you make of the two leaders' defence spending statements so far? Well, they're interesting, uh, aren't they? I think both dodged uh, making any kind of commitments for a rise. But I think there is a credible argument um, that Boris Johnson, the Conservatives, can make that, you know, last year... Um, there was 1.8 billion given to defence under Gavin Williamson uh, as defence secretary. Ben Wallace has won another 2.2 billion. The defence budget as a whole is not looking in as shabby a shape as it was about uh, 12 months ago. Obviously, Jeremy Corbyn uh, is focusing his defence pleasures around social issues, you know, better housing for troops. Obviously, you asked him about um, this pay rise he's offering. I think there will be key questions asked about the credibility of that pledge when he can't point to what he would cut. And it probably would uh, entail cuts, let's be honest, um, to, to, to enact such a pay rise. I mean, I think we'll probably get more questions on that when the manifestos come out possibly next week. Uh, both have also been talking uh, about another issue uh, that uh, has got a lot of political attention. Uh, very cautious about investigations into recent incidents where a soldier might be prosecuted. Uh, we're announcing today that uh, we will try to stop vexatious prosecutions of people who have uh, suffered and served so well for our country. Uh, when there's no new evidence and so we're going to amend the Human Rights Act to have a, have a deadline uh, of, of the year 2000. You know, we shouldn't be going back in history when there's no new evidence to prosecute people who served Queen and Country. How easy is that going to be to do though? Are people going to be worried that politicians are actually, you know, influencing the law and that should be separate? Well, I think actually if you look at what's happened to the law, it has, the law is, is sort of expanded its boundaries and there was always the, the, the law of armed conflict which did protect people, uh, protect people who serve uh, Queen and Country. Let's look, obviously, if people commit crimes in the course of, of their duties, if they behave in a way that is against the laws of war, against the Geneva Convention, then they must be prosecuted. But what we can't have is, is people being prosecuted when there's no new evidence and, where, and when it's vexatious. So that's what we're trying to do. How easy do you think it's going to be to make those changes? Because obviously there's been a Conservative government for a while now and it, it hasn't been changed even though there's been a lot of campaigning for We've it. We've got a very determined Conservative government now and, we're, and you've also got the first ever Minister for Veterans in the Cabinet Office, Johnny Mercer. Uh, well, <coughs> we'll be working very, very hard to get that done. That was Boris Johnson on historic allegations. Here's Jeremy Corbyn on the same issue. Well, first of all, Vexatious cases should be dismissed by the court immediately and should not be brought up. And the court, all courts have the power to do that. 
If they want to change the Human Rights Act, I think they should be very careful. The Human Rights Act was passed for a purpose, and it is in line with um, the UN Convention on Human Rights as well as the European Convention of Human Rights. It's also a protection of the individual soldier, of their right to representation, their right to be heard, and their right to be treated fairly and properly by their employer. To say that you place any group of society above and without the law is, I think, a very bad principle and a very bad precedent. Are you happy, though, that people in their 70s are currently being investigated for actions half a century ago? I think it's gone on for a very long time and maybe the cases should have been dealt with much sooner. But I do think there is a principle of the rule of law applying to all of us equally. And that, as I say, is also a defence for those people serving in the armed forces because their rights are also protected. That's Jeremy Corbyn's view on how to deal with historic allegations. Lucy Fisher, is this going to really be an election issue, do you think? Well, I think it does matter to people because there's an, essentially a sense that the way that many veterans, as you point out, some of whom are in their 70s, others are in their 60s, um, are facing you know, the stress, upheaval and anxiety of repeated investigation. It's just not cricket. And I think that that is a sort of issue that the British public um, can, can find very um, upsetting. Um, I think that there are a big problem here is how complicated all the proposed legal solutions are. There is no silver bullet, and we know that because you know Boris Johnson and Ben Wallace aren't the first people to say that they want to tackle this issue. I count four defence secretaries now who've said it's a priority. The MOD has done a lot of work on the potential um, legal options that could be put on the table. Obviously, the Northern Ireland office plays a big part in this as well because, you know, the, the families of victims of terror-related deaths also want to see justice and truth about what happened. So I don't think that necessarily what Boris Johnson, the Conservatives, are suggesting necessarily works, from what I understand from human rights lawyers, although that is contested by some uh, Conservative politicians. Mm. I also think that Jeremy Corbyn warning about, you know, tweaks and, 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 and changes to the Human Rights Act is also quite a strong argument. I think people will be concerned at the idea of the government of the day, you know, potentially running a coach and horses through a piece of legislation that is in line with the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, and, and that is not, not something we should sort of easily mess around with. Christopher Lee, do you think at party headquarters they're looking at issues like this and going, well, actually, a lot of minds are fixed on big issues like Brexit. Where, where do we help people make a final push in one direction? On the question of historical investigations, um, I would suggest that probably only Northern Ireland uh, is a place where this is this is a part of part of part of the electoral issues. Um, Northern Ireland has is a place of memories. Uh, people, parties, etc., have not simply memories, but good definitions of what did or might might have happened. Therefore, it could be a political and electoral mm -hmm. issue here. But not in the rest of the United Kingdom, where there's no evidence in the polling that shows that anybody is, A, politically interested in it, uh, and B, it might even find that certain parties are actually sort of... Uh, for the idea that just get on with it and forget it. And there's another part of it. It's very difficult, very, very difficult to follow it as an argument um, in, in, in an election time. The issues in election time are much have to be much more simply explained. Uh, Lucy, I mean, effectively, I was asking Christopher there, how important could defence be in the election? Maybe the question actually should be, how important is this election and its outcome for defence? 
Well, I think it was interesting in your interview with Boris Johnson, him talking about the armed forces as a British export. I certainly think that there is a big role um, for Britain, both the forces in peacekeeping roles in Africa and further afield, and also for British industry, defence um, contractors selling kit abroad. There is a big role for British defence to play in a post-Brexit vision um, for the country under the Conservatives. Um, they're a part. Uh, I think that the budget issues um, are, are still there, but shouldn't be exaggerated. As I mentioned earlier, there have been there have been sort of remedies in in the last budget and then, then the spending round um, a couple of months ago. Um, beyond that, you know, I, I think defence, you know, falls far behind Brexit. This is the Brexit election, and um, and, and I think we can expect that to dominate. Lucy, a very quick thought: the most important issue in British defence over the past sixty years is what we now call Trident. Uh, And although Trident is up for renewal and Labour has supported it, the renewal, uh, it is against all the instincts of the Labour Party to do so, but no mention at all of it. I think you're you're absolutely right. Um, it was interesting to see uh, Emily Thornbury, the uh, Labour Shadow Foreign Secretary, asked earlier this week whether you know there was any point in, in having it, or whether she thought um, Jeremy Corbyn would ever use it. You know, while Labour committed to retaining Trident in its last manifesto, Jeremy Corbyn, his well-known views um, against the nuclear deterrent. Um, he was unable to hide his ambivalence about it on the campaign trail last time. So I, I think it will come up with him personally in this campaign. And I think that there will be um, an issue in voters' but, minds. But Labour about... have Labour have taken an unequivocal position. They have answered that question now, haven't they? It's a problem well, arguably the, for the... him, but not for the party. Well, it's a it's a problem for both. The voters believe that the party's pledging to retain it, but the leader, you know, wouldn't use it. I mean, it's not a credible deterrent if there is no suggestion it would ever be used. You know, deterrence works by creating, you know, in the mind of a potential adversary, the threat of a genuine attack. And I think there are concerns that um, if Jeremy Corbyn isn't really committed to the idea of the nuclear deterrent, a manifesto pledge isn't, you know, really worth the paper it's written on. A f- final brief thought from you, Lucy. What about the floods? Has there been a misstep for Boris Johnson in terms of response to that? And, and you know, then seeing him alongside armed forces several days later. I think um, the the speed um, or lack thereof um, that he has acted with has been a cause. Um, of concern um, around um, the Don Valley, the Don, the Don River, and, and uh, further fields in Yorkshire. We've seen terrible headlines for him today. You know, when he was on the campaign trail yesterday, people asked, you know, why he hadn't turned up earlier, why he hadn't termed this a national emergency. Um, I think people are grateful to the, the help offered by the armed forces. You know, we've seen this sort of footage of the Chinooks helping shore up flood defences. And of course, 200 troops deployed yesterday, 200 more put on readiness. It's welcome, but it hasn't been done with enough alacrity, I think many people rightly say. Well, uh, 28 days time, four weeks, we will be voting in this election. And we'll know shortly afterwards what effect, if any, there has been. Lucy Fisher from The Times, thank you very much for joining us. Finally this week, one of the last field marshals in the British Army died this week. He was Dwyn Bramall. He took part in almost every military operation from the D-Day landings until his time as CGS during the Falklands War in 1982. He went on to become Chief of the Defence Staff, uh, and Christopher Lee, you knew him. Yeah, we used to meet occasionally at the same club. It was one of those, you know, the the last drink of the evening. 
Um, but when we did, it was really not so much to, disco to discover what we both thought about defence. I mean, I'm not sure he was ever interested in what I thought. Uh, but it was cricket. He was a great cricketer. He captained Eton in the famous uh, uh, match against Harrow in 1942 and hit the winning runs. He was president of the MCC. He regarded cricket as, as a great leveller. Um, and he was different different, in, to my mind, of all the defence uh, chiefs of the defence staff that I ever knew. What he, was different I, about him? Well, the first thing is something we've just been discussing, Trident. He opposed Trident. Uh, and he and Heseltine had this great discussion. And Heseltine was then the defence secretary. And, and Heseltine said to him, if we hadn't got Trident, I would tell the Prime Minister not to bother to buy it. Now, these were sort of totally against all defence policy. Yeah. But yeah. he was also defense, against defence policy in another way. It's something else we were discussing earlier about Macron. He said we shouldn't concentrate simply on NATO. We should think further afield because that was where the world would tumble, further afield rather than Central Europe. And, and his example of that was that when we went to war with the Americans in, in Iraq, he said he was against it. Very, very, very much against it. He said, because what would happen is that the, uh, our belligerence, as I think he called it, uh, would, 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 would bring about an attempt by something called ISIS, which at that time nobody was talking about. And he was absolutely right, right. He had the ability to be right in the most genial way, especially about England cricket. Christopher, uh, I'm sure for many people his legacy and that difference will continue to live on. Thank you for your thoughts uh, on that and everything else this week. Uh, thank you for listening and uh, thank you to the rest of our guests. You can join the discussion on Twitter at BFBS Sitrap and Sitrap is back same time next week. Bye for now. <laughs>